You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. I'll be praying for you. How encouraging do you find it whenever a friend or family member says that to you? I'll be praying for you. It is encouraging, isn't it? I find it encouraging when some of you tell me that. Several of you told me that this morning. You'll be praying for me as I preach or in uh, some travels I have coming up. Uh, I'll be praying for you. Thank you so much. And, and yet, you know what? I think sometimes, and I'm not a cynical person by nature, but I think sometimes when people say that, our encouragement is somewhat, uh, should I say, softened or diminished because we know, we know that people sometimes forget. And in saying that, I confess that there have been times, there have been times when I've told people I'll be praying for you, and then maybe days go by or weeks go by, and then I remember, I never prayed for so-and-so, and and I said I would. By the way, I get teased for carrying a 3 by 5 card in my pocket, but that's one reason I do, is I don't have a really good memory, and so if I tell someone I'll be praying for them, I I better write it down, you know, and it's an old, old habit. Um, But sometimes when we say, I'll be praying for you. That's encouraging. But you know what's even more encouraging? At least this has been my experience. You know what's even more encouraging? Is if somebody says, a brother or sister in Christ says, why don't I pray for you right now? And I see this happening in our auditorium after services sometimes. I I see people cluster together, and, and maybe one man has his shoulder on the hand on the shoulder of a brother, and he's praying for him right then and there, or sisters in Christ gathered around holding hands and praying for one another. You know, even more encouraging than someone saying, I'll pray for you, is actually hearing someone pray for you right here, right now. And by the way, I would encourage us as a church family to consider that practice maybe more often. It's okay to say, I'll pray for you, but why not just do it now? And even though I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it sometimes, I find myself doing that even on the phone. You know, if I'm talking to someone on the phone about a concern on her heart or his heart, I might say, can I pray for you right now? And it's even, it's even more encouraging to actually hear people praying for us. But do you know what would be even more encouraging than that? Another step up? What would be even more encouraging than hearing a friend or a Christian relative actually praying for us? What would be even more encouraging than that? How about hearing Jesus pray for us? Can you imagine actually hearing Jesus pray for us? Join me, please, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 26. Did you know that there is a place in the Bible that we can, as it were, actually listen in to Jesus praying for us? John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have. He prayed this prayer of John 17. He prayed it in the hearing of his remaining 11 apostles hours away from the cross. It's now getting late into the evening on the night before the cross. And Jesus prayed this prayer out loud in the presence of those men. One of them was a young man named John. And later, the Holy Spirit brought that prayer to his memory, and it's recorded for us here on the pages of John 17. It's a very personal prayer. It's a very passionate prayer. 
And I mentioned last week, it's like standing on holy ground because we're peering into the heart of Jesus as he realizes he's going to the cross in a matter of hours. Many of you here last Sunday, as we looked at the first five verses, where Jesus prayed for himself. And he prayed in particular for his own glory. Glory the next morning on the cross. That the glory of God would be seen in the cross the next day but also that he might receive the glory he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. So he prays for glory in two contexts, glory on the cross and glory in his coronation. Today we're going to continue in Jesus' prayer, and today we're going to see that Jesus prays for us. And as we look at this passage, my prayer for us is that we find both assurance and purpose as we listen to our Lord's heart praying for us. Have you found John 17 in your Bible? I'd encourage you to turn or tap, follow along, make sure I'm sticking to the text. It's not an easy passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask some simple questions that will help us stay on track. We're going to look at Jesus' prayer, verses 6 through 26, asking these three basic questions for you note-takers. Pretty easy. Number one, who is Jesus praying for? Number two, what is Jesus praying for? And number three, why is Jesus praying for that? So who is Jesus praying for? What is he praying for? And why would he pray for that? You follow along now as I read these verses. Beginning at verse 6 of John 17, Jesus is praying out loud somewhere between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. <coughs> o righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So who is Jesus praying for? Well, it's fascinating, maybe even a little bit jarring if you've never heard this passage before, that Jesus makes a point of who he's not praying for. Did you notice that? He actually made a point in his prayer to say, I'm not praying for the world. The world here represents people who are caught up in the world system, <coughs> who have refused to believe in Jesus Christ. They've refused to follow and obey Jesus Christ. That group of people out there that is still refusing Christ are called the world. And Jesus makes a point here that he says, I'm not praying for the world. Now, let me just say this. It's not that Jesus was against ever praying for the world. In fact, if you keep following in the Gospel of John, you will find out that just hours from this event, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he actually prays for the people that were murdering him. As he hung on the cross, in just a matter of hours, he looks down at the people murdering him and says, Father, forgive them. He's, he's praying to his heavenly Father for his enemies, the world. So it's not like Jesus never prayed for the world. He did sometimes. <coughs> but it's fascinating to me that in this passage, this night before the cross, Jesus makes a point to say, tonight, I'm not praying for the world. Hmm. He says instead, tonight, I'm praying for those whom you have given me. Fascinating concept. It's as if Jesus looks out, as it were, into the whole world, and there's this mass of humanity, all the people from all the ages, from all around the globe. And he says, from this mass of humanity, Father, you have given me a distinct group of people. Jesus alludes to that. He refers to that even in his prayer, that somewhere back in eternal counsel, somewhere in eternity past, the Father gave the Son a distinct group of people. And Jesus refers to this group that had been given to him no fewer than five times in this prayer. If you listen carefully, Jesus talks about those whom you have given me, they, them, those whom you have given me. Jesus was commissioned in eternity past to come to this fallen planet and to redeem that group of people that had been entrusted to him, who had been given to him. This is not a new subject introduced the night before the cross. Many of you, even if you're not yet a believer, you've heard certain Bible verses here in our culture be repeated so often. And one of those would be one we hear at Christmas time. At Christmas time, there are certain verses in the Bible that get repeated pretty broadly, and one of them is the angel's message to Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, where he tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit, and 
And then the angel told Jesus, some of you could finish this verse with me. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So even before Jesus was born, the message was already out there. You shall call his name Yeshua, Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so even back at, before Jesus was born, the word was already out that there is a distinct group of people that God has on his heart that he will save one day and he's sending his son. He's sending his son on this mission to come to this planet to, to redeem, to save his people from their sins. Jesus lived with that concept. He died with that in view. Now, some of you might be looking at me with furrowed brow right now and say, well, I, I thought Jesus loved everybody. You know, I thought Jesus died for everybody. Well, let, let, me, let me say it this way. Um, yeah, in a sense, he loves everybody, doesn't he? He created everyone. We're all image bearers. He sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. And yet there is a particular love that Jesus has for his people, his church, his elect. Uh, let me give an illustration here. Some of you have heard me use this before. If I were to look out into our auditorium today at the gathered church, and I see the faces of a number of my sisters in Christ, and if I were to look at you sisters in Christ here in the room today and say, sisters in Christ, I love you. You know what? That would be a true statement. I, I love the men in this church too, but I could distinguish the ladies here and say, sisters in Christ, I love you as your brother in Christ, as one of your pastors, I can say that with integrity. But if I go over this direction and I look at my wife and I say particularly, Gladine, I love you, everyone knows in this room that I'm saying something in distinction from what I just said to all the ladies in the church. When I look at this lady, my wife, for these almost 44 years, and I say, Gladine, I love you, you know I am making a qualitatively different statement. There is a unique love I have for my wife that's not true for you other ladies. You realize Jesus Christ is very similar in that way, that he loves all of his image bearers, all the people that he created, and yet he has a particular love, a, a specific love, a unique love for his bride, his church. And there's a verse in the Bible that reminds us of this. And you Christian men here should remember this verse with me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives just like, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But even though Jesus does have this general love for all, there is a particular love, a specific love, a special love, a focused love, a dying love for his bride. And as he was preparing for the cross this night, it was his people that were on his heart. In fact, Jesus had the boldness to say, tonight, tonight, on my heart, I'm not just thinking in generalities tonight, I'm not just thinking of the this mass of humanity tonight, tonight on my heart is my bride. Tomorrow I'm going to dive into the ocean of God's wrath to rescue my bride. Tonight on my heart is my bride. My 
whole world tonight, tonight, I want to pray, I want to seek, I want to know Him and give Him to you. Who does that involve? Those whom you've given me. Well, obviously, it's the 11 men standing around Him. Those men that would later become known as apostles. Some of them are pretty well known, aren't they? People like Peter and James and John and some not quite as well known like Andrew and some hardly known at all, people like Bartholomew or Thaddeus. But those 11 men were definitely on his heart. But it's not just them. Remember when we got to verse 20? Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, these 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know what? If you're here today as a believer, in this culture and in this age, you're included in Jesus' prayer that night. I'm included in his prayer that night. That that night, I was on his heart. I was on his heart. Fellow Christian, you were on his heart that night. And so he's, he's praying for those whom, Father, you've given me. You gave them to me in eternity past, and you sent me here to redeem them, and they're on my heart as I prepare for the cross. It's the 11, yes, but it's all of us believers, and it's our brothers and sisters in Christ who've lived in other eras and who live in, in other cultures and in other language groups. prayer for those whom you have given me is so interwoven. It's so interwoven. I was telling Gladding, Gladding gets to hear the sermon about three times before you do. <laughs> I was telling Gladding that just like when you watch Jesus praying here or listen to Jesus praying here, it's like, it's, it's not linear. It's not like he goes from point A to point B to point C to point D. Amen. It's like he keeps circling around. It's like, it's like he keeps circling around and he's praying and he's circling back around and praying and circling back around and praying. And, and you listen to his prayers here and, and um, you start saying, well, didn't he say that over here? And it's, yeah. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at his prayer and we're going to put both groups together. Verses 6 through 19, he's focusing particularly on the 11. In verses 20 through 26, he's particularly focusing those of us who would become believers through their word, either through their preaching in the first century or their writing of the New Testament documents. But those of us who came to believe in Christ through their word were included in those latter verses. But in reality, it's hard to bifurcate those two groups. It's hard to divide those two groups. It thinks he's praying for one group, he's praying for the other group. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to wrap them all together. I'm going to say this. Whether it was an apostle or you or me, there are certain distinguishing marks of true followers of Jesus Christ. What are some of the marks of being a follower of Jesus Christ? There's a number in this passage, this prayer of Jesus, but let me pick some. Let me just pick some of them. What makes a Christian distinguishable from a non-Christian? What makes someone distinguishable who's part of the bride of Christ contrasted to someone who's still in the world? Well, for one thing, Jesus says in verse 6, they have been given God's name. Jesus gave them God's name. What does that mean? Well, often when you see this in the Bible, the name, uh, we're talking about the character of God. We're talking about all that God is. Jesus came to this earth for a number of reasons, but one of them was to make the Father known. He came to show us God the Father. In fact, Jesus said at one point, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right here at the beginning of John's Gospel, in chapter 1, he said this, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
That's a theme in the Gospel of John. John's going to make a point that one reason Jesus came was to show us the Father, to show us what the Father is like in his character, in his priorities, in his words and in his works. He came to show us the name of his heavenly Father. That's a distinguishing mark as a Christian. We've been shown God. In verse 8, he says, they have kept my words, plural, interestingly. They have kept my words, meaning that um, the followers of Jesus Christ listen to Jesus and follow him, obey him. John's going to make a point of that in his first letter. Read 1 John, and he expounds on this issue, that my followers listen to me, they obey me, they, they follow in my steps. In verse 8b, he says, they know and believe the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. You find that theme repeated in this prayer. Jesus says, they know that you have sent me. What's he talking about? Jesus is God come in the flesh. And that he came as the Messiah, the Christ. Now, lots of people, lots of people saw Jesus in the first century. Lots of people saw him. Lots of people heard him preach. But a lot of people didn't care. In fact, the majority of people didn't quit care. I mean, some were very disturbed, but quite frankly, a lot of them just ignored him. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But there were some people gripped by God's grace. Some people were given eyes to see, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior that God promised. This is the one whom the Old Testament looked forward to, the coming Messiah, the anointed king. Some of you might remember that Jesus asked his men one time, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're Elijah. Other people say you're so-and-so, you're a prophet. And then Jesus, he asked a real personal question next, didn't he? Remember this passage? He said, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's getting personal, isn't it? And Peter, Peter the spokesman, says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. The son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't tell you that. Peter, the only way you know that is because God gave you eyes to see. The only way you feel that in your heart, Peter, is because God took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Otherwise, you'd be like everyone else and just miss it. Peter saw, and so did the others in that band of 11, that they saw that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the promised Savior. Another distinguishing mark, and one that we probably could park on a little longer but won't have time, is Jesus says repeatedly in this passage, I know it's in verse 14, it's in verse 16, Jesus says, they are not of this world. Well, wait a minute, I was born here on this planet, weren't you? What does that mean, not of this world? Jesus saying, my followers, my followers, those who are truly converted, those who are believers, Christians, they don't belong to this world anymore. They were born in this world, and they lived at least part of their lives in this world, um, ignoring God. By the way, this, this is kind of the bifurcation. This is the separation between the people of the world and the people of Christ. And all of us in our past, before our conversions, we were all in the world. We are all of the world. And the distinguishing mark of someone who's of the world is, you have no right to tell me how to run my life. That's in essence capturing the heart of people in the world. No one's going to tell me what's right and wrong. No one's going to tell me what's true and false. I'll decide for myself. I have a right to decide for myself what's true and what isn't true, what's right and what isn't right. 
And it's this defiance against God saying, you're not going to run my life. You're not going to tell me anything. I'm my own person. That goes back to the Garden of Eden, friends. That's exactly what Satan told Eve. You don't have to listen to God. Did God really say, be independent, Eve. Chart your own course. Go your own way. She believed it. And so did her husband. And their sin genes have gotten passed down from generation to generation. I don't care what race you are, what ethnicity you are, what educational level you have, what economic status you're from. Everybody, apart from the intervening grace of God, has that attitude in, in, in or of himself or herself. I have a right to determine my own life. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'll decide what's right for me. You live your life, I'll live my life. I'll decide where I go. That is the essence of worldliness. But when God's grace gets hold of a person's life and shows them the glory of God in the face of Christ, when we see Christ, when we see Him as God's Messiah, when we see Him as God come in the flesh, we bend our knee and we say, you're the king, not me. You're the king. And I want to listen to you. I want to trust you. I want to obey you. You're the king of evil. You're the king of life. And when that miracle of grace happens in our hearts, friends, we are no longer of the world. Peter would say it this, excuse me, Paul would say this later in his letter to the Colossians. He said, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Oh, what a glorious transfer. That you and I, fellow Christians, we used to belong to the kingdom of darkness. But God in His amazing grace was on a rescue mission. He came to save us. And He got hold of us in that kingdom of darkness. And He says, you are mine. I'm going to give you eyes to see, ears to hear, a new heart. And He transfers us from that dominion of darkness. And He puts us in the kingdom of light. The kingdom of His Son whom He loves. And we suddenly find ourselves, though, we're still walking on this fallen planet. Though we're still living in this world. We still go to our jobs. We still go to our school. We still live in our houses. We still have the same family members. We're still in the world. But we're no longer of the world. We're still in the world, but we're no longer of the world. We have a whole different way of looking at everything. We have a whole different reason for living. We have a whole different sense of who we are and who He is. That's a distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. And then quickly, I'll just give one more distinguishing mark of true followers of Christ in this passage, and that's that they've seen His glory. They've seen His glory. Jesus is impressive, friends. That if you're truly a believer, you, you look at Christ and you say, oh, isn't He something? Isn't he something? You're impressed with him. You're impressed with his glory. You're impressed with his grace. The world doesn't see him that way. But we do. So what is Jesus praying for? That's who's on his heart. This night isn't just the world. On his heart tonight is his bride, the church, his elect, the people whom the Father has given him. He prays these things. He prays for protection, for preservation. He 
you see that in verses 11 and 12, he circles back around. 14, 16, you see it in verse 18. He keeps circling around, asking his father, please protect them. You see, Jesus is going back to the Father. And in his ascension, just less, what, five weeks or so later, he's going to go back to his heavenly Father. And he says, I'm leaving the world, Father. And it's going to be a dangerous world. Would you protect? Would you protect my people? Would you protect those whom you've given me? There's going to be a danger that they drift from me, that they drift from you, that they're going to face opposition, they're going to face difficulties, persecution in this world, and the temptation will be for them to say, maybe we should keep a lower profile, maybe we should back away, maybe we shouldn't be so strong on that point. Father, protect them from that. Protect them from the tendency to drift, to shirk to shy away from me and from you. Father, protect them from the evil one. He prays for unity, doesn't he? That's a repeated thing. Did you notice how many times Jesus prays for unity? He knows there's danger of division in the body of Christ. And he has this standard, this benchmark that just takes the breath out of our lungs. He says in verse 21 that they may all be one as you and I are one, Father. You and me, I and you. May they be one as we're one. You say, whoa, no, that's, that's, quite the, that's quite the benchmark, that we have unity as a body of Christ the way there's unity in the Trinity. How does that happen? How is there unity? You know, so many people see this and they feel like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to create some unity here. And different people attempt to do this from the outside in. You know, and some churches try to do this by imposing uniformity, where if we're going to have unity, then we all should look the same. You know, we should all prefer the same kind of clothes, same kind of whatever preferences in life. We should all like the same kind of music. And, you know, if we could just get everybody looking the same, sounding the same, liking the same things, then we're going to have unity. This isn't uniformity. The body of Christ is diverse by God's design and yet unified. We have unity in the midst of diversity, and that brings God, brings God glory. No, it's not uniformity. And it's not some sort of bureaucratic unity that comes through negotiations between denominations. You know, if we get our denomination, that denomination, sit down and hammer out some compromises, then we'll have unity. That doesn't work either. You keep going for the lowest common denominator, and pretty soon nobody believes anything. That, that, that's not it. This isn't from the outside in. This is from the inside out. That the Holy Spirit bears fruit in the lives of his church. And there's a living unity, an organic unity that comes as the Spirit comes and he does something in us. And the way I like to think of this, I mean, it's not, I don't want to paint too simple a picture here, but I think this helps me in my simplicity, is that if we're all pursuing Christ, and if we're all pursuing his truth, then as you move toward Christ in his truth, and, and you move toward Christ in his truth, and I move toward Christ in the truth, as we all move toward Christ in his truth, we'll find ourselves getting closer and closer together because we're pursuing the same objective. We're pursuing the same goal. We want to know Christ. We want to know his truth. And in this passage, Jesus unites this prayer for unity. He unites it with the issue of truth over and over, that it's truth that unites us. Truth doesn't come from the lowest common denominator. Truth comes from the highest denominator, and that is Christ and his word. And so we pursue that as a church. We pursue that as a body. 
And then let me mention one more here, a distinguishing mark and also a prayer of Jesus Christ here is for glory. We saw glory in the first five verses, and we see it here too. He wants his glory to be seen in us, and he wants his glory to be seen by us. I think in verse 22, we see that as, as um, we get here again. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And so it's something that's already taken place in a verse that I think we Christians should be very familiar with. Write down the reference, get familiar with it, maybe even try to memorize it. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 6 where it says that God does his miracle of grace that he lets us see. He shines light into the darkened souls of man so that they would see the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's just like from Genesis 1 where God said, Let there be light. And his voice spoke into the darkness and there was light. God speaks the miracle of grace into the darkened souls of sinners. And he speaks into the darkened soul of a sinner and says, Let there be light. Let them see, let them see my glory in the face of my son, Jesus Christ. And God does that. He gives people eyes to see. And where yesterday they didn't care about Jesus Christ, and now they see Jesus Christ with glory indeed. Jesus says, I've already done that. I I let them see my glory. But then we get down to verse 24, and he has a different kind of prayer here, but also about glory. He says, He speaks future tense. He says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Friends, we were made for glory. We were made for glory. Do you ever wonder why people get so passionate about sports, competition, or other things where there's competition, competition at work? Who's going to get the corner office? Who's going to get the promotion? Who looks the prettiest? Who has the most friends on Facebook? Do you know those quests are explainable? We're all image bearers. We're all image bearers of God, and we're all made for glory. We're all made for glory. And yet what happens is we settle for too little. We aim too low. And we say, well, maybe there'll be glory if I succeed in athletics. Maybe there'll be glory if I succeed in popularity here in the community. Maybe I'll get glory if I get a raise, if I get a promotion at work. Maybe I'll get glory if people in the church think that I'm something special. I'm aiming too low. It's not that we're aiming too high. It's that we're aiming too low. Because those are all hollow substitutes for the greatest glory. And that is that we might see Christ. He's the the greatest glory. And when he comes and does his miracle of salvation, when he comes and does his miracle of sovereign grace in the lives of people, suddenly we see what we were made for. We were made for his glory. We were made to see him and to pursue him. And Jesus knows that, and he's praying for this in his grace. He says, Lord, those people, Father, those people that you've given me, I, I want them, I want them to see my glory. That's the best good, the sumum bonum. That's, that's the best good there is. That they would get to be with me forever. See my glory. Yesterday, Rodney and I got to spend some time with Lou Martinez one of the oldest members of our church. Lou's 91 years old, and she, my friends, is on the porch with us. She's on the porch with us. 
Marion and I stood beside her bed one day. And we listened to her. And we spoke to her. And we prayed for her. We read scriptures to her. And we sang to her about glory far ahead. Lou, soon, soon, Lord, we will see the Holy Sanctuary. Always after glorious glory. days, Christian friends, so will you, and so will I. There's an old hymn that's one of my favorites, and my kids already know it's to be sung at my funeral. So if you outlive me, you remind me. It's called The Sands of Time. It has about 20 verses. I kid you not. Here, let me pick three. You ready? The Sands of Time are sinking. The king there in his beauty, without avail, is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the sweet, sweet well of love. Streams of earth I've tasted. More deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean forming. His mercy, mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's form. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Jesus Christ, isn't that glorious? We pray for that. Father, I want the people you've given me to be with you, to be with you, and to see me again. And then Jesus has at least one more prayer request, and I'll just end by mentioning it. He prays for love. In verses 25 and 26. But why is he praying for these things? Why is Jesus praying these things for us, his people? Those whom have been given to him by the Father. Well, one is he knows that we live in this world. And this is a hostile world. The dangers of living for Christ in this world are real. This same night, just probably an hour or so before, Jesus told his men this. And I quote from John 15. Verses 18 and 19, just hours before this, maybe one hour before this, Jesus told his men this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Did you get that? 
Jesus says to us as his followers, if you were still in the world, you wouldn't bother anybody. You would blend in. No one would care. But the fact that I called you out of the world and I've given you my priorities, I've given you my perspective on life, I've given you my passion for eternity, you're going to stand out. You're going to be different. You're going to be swimming against the flow. And that doesn't always sit well with people in the world. They're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. They might remember you. They might remember you in the old days when you were like them. But now I've come and I've gripped you by my sovereign grace, and you're different now. You have a different outlook on life, a different reason to live, different priorities, different attitudes. You're going to feel judged. You're going to feel judged just by your presence. Friends, we might be saddened by the way we're treated in our world, but we ought not to be surprised. Sometimes Christians in our era and our culture get accused of things that are almost irrational. And you say, where in the world did that come from? I don't know that there's any point in spending a lot of time defending ourselves. I mean, it's just reality. We're different because Christ has made us different. He's called us to himself. He's given us a different outlook on everything, a different reason to live, a different way to live, different affections. But Jesus said, the world hates us because of that. A pastoral comment. We shouldn't try to be offensive. I, I see some Christians who think somehow it's virtuous to try to be offensive. And they come across as haughty and harsh. You know what I mean? Snotty Christian. You know, proud little guy, you know. That's not at all what Christ is talking about here. But he's, he's talking about what I would call humble courage. That having been gripped by grace, we realize that we have a different master, a different calling in life, a different perspective on things. And living that way in and of itself will be offensive. And when we open our mouths and talk about salvation through Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, people aren't going to like that. They're going to say, how in the world could you be so narrow? And they're not going to like it. They're going to hate it. And Jesus knows. He knows. You're gonna, it's going to be hard. The world's going to hate you because it's already hated me and you're following me, so they're going to hate you too. And Jesus says, Lord, keep them safe. Lord, please, Lord. And we need that. We need his prayers. We need our prayers. But it's not just the world that talks up to us. It's Satan himself. In verse 15, he says, keep them from the evil one. Satan opposes the followers of Jesus Christ. It's not so much I don't think he hates us so much as he hates our Lord. And so he'll try to trip us up. The answer, my friends, is not to live a hermit life. The answer is, boy, the world hates us. We need to cloister ourselves somehow. We need to hide from the world over here and have our own little commune and hide from the world. That's not at all. He wants us like him. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. He wants us to be incarnational. He wants us to live in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. And so the answer to facing a hostile world is not to withdraw, but with humble courage to infiltrate our world with the sake of the gospel. So what impact should Jesus' prayer for us have on us? What impact should Jesus' prayer have on What kind of impact should it have on us individually? But also, what kind of impact should Jesus' prayer have on us as the body of Christ, as his church? Let me just give two. I would say Jesus wants us to be a faithful church. He wants us to be faithful. 
We pray for preservation. We pray for unity. We pray for sanctification. We didn't even take time to delve into that. He wants us to be faithful to his word. He wants us to be faithful to him. And so we hear his prayer and we say, Lord, help us to be a faithful church. Remind us whose we are, that we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to you, Father. We belong to you, Christ. And so we encourage each other to stand strong for Christ. He wants us to be a faithful church. But he also wants us to be a missional church. Did you notice how many times Jesus talked about sending us out, uh, carrying on the work of the gospel? As we infiltrate the world for the sake of the gospel, we do it by what we say. Peter, who was there that night, would later write in his first letter, but you are a chosen people. Excuse me, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies, plural, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so you and I, having been gripped by God's grace, having been prayed for by our Lord, we go into our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, our extended family context, bearing the light of the gospel. Part of that is what we say. We tell people about the excellencies of our Lord. We tell people, ain't he something? And then we tell them about Jesus Christ, his glory and his grace. So we speak words. The gospel involves words. So we give people the words of the gospel. But it's not only our words, what we say, it's how we live. It's how we live together as the body of Christ. Earlier in this evening, that Jesus prayed this prayer, he said to his men in another context in John 13, he says, this is how everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you, some of you know this, if you love one another. And one of the distinguishing marks of the people of Christ is that we love one another, that we live together with a holy love. We live together truly caring for one another, helping each other become more like Christ, praying for one another, helping each other physically when there's a need. <clears throat> But something else Jesus says in this passage in John 17 is that our unity will also speak to the world of the gospel. So it's not only what we say, it's how we live. We live with love for one another, but we also live in unity with one another. That Christians, you, you think about our church. You think about the diversity in our church, and I pray for the day when we're more diverse. We have people from different races, different ethnicities, different age groups, different educational levels different families of origin, different testimonies. And yet we find ourselves calling each other brother and sister. We find ourselves loving one another, giving for one another, giving our time, our spiritual gifts, our resources, that we, we live together as the body of Christ. The watching world should be looking at us, the church, and saying, you know what, there must be something to this Jesus stuff. There must be something to this Jesus stuff because otherwise I don't understand how these people get along so well. I don't understand how these people have such a common, a shared passion about life. There must be something about this gospel of Jesus Christ that we should live in such a way. That's why unity is so important in the body of Christ. That's why love is so important in the body of Christ. It's not just so that we can live more peaceably, although that is a wonderful benefit. But it's also because of the shared testimony we have, the shared witness we have. As the body of Christ, as we live even here in our community, the people who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ should have their curiosities uh, aroused. They should have their appetites whetted. 
And they say, you guys are different. Hopefully that's a compliment. <laughs> you guys are different. Tell me more. Tell me more. What makes you different? And we can share Jesus Christ. Friends, as we look back over this prayer of Jesus in John 17, it should be very reassuring. Do we remember that our Savior prays for us? He loves us so. And do you know the Bible tells us in a couple of places that Jesus continues this ministry? That Jesus continues this ministry of interceding for us? The author of Hebrews said this, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The fact that Jesus didn't stay dead but came alive again and is alive to this day is reassuring to us that he continues praying for us. Paul said to the Romans and to the Roman believers in chapter 8, <coughs> who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, present participle, who is interceding for us. That should be very reassuring. That there are days when you say, I don't know if my grip on Jesus is very strong. Oh, I'm a little concerned here. Well, that's a good concern to have. But then you remember, oh, but he has a grip on me. He has a grip on me. And his grip is sure. So listening to Jesus' prayer for us should be very reassuring. But it also should be very motivating. That as we as the church listen to Jesus praying for us, we realize what his priorities are. Holiness, sanctification matters to him. Unity matters to him. We read these prayer requests, we listen to these prayer requests, by our, prayer requests by our Lord, and we say, that's a priority to him, that should be a priority to us. And so it's, this prayer is not only reassuring, but it's also motivating that we say, I want to listen to his calling for us as a church. We don't have to come up with our own vision as a church. He's already given it to us. It's his vision. He's the head of the church. And so we look at these things and we say, Lord, make that true for Jesus' church.